walking outside and she sees my dad and four of his buddies and they looked like they had just walked out of a, bu- a, pa- a bar or a pub. And as soon as they, as soon as they see my, my, my mom, my dad just like walks over to her and my mom was like in disbelief. She couldn't believe that my dad was in New Zealand. They connected and against everybody's will, they get married. And we have a family that's like, I only have one brother and one sister. And my dad kind of raised us to think for ourselves and to try and, you know, be successful. And, and my mom, on the other hand, she was like trying to raise us to, to know God first. And I knew my mother as a, a woman of prayer. She was a ferocious woman of prayer. She was a woman that would pray three times a day. She would pray in the morning. She would pray later on in the afternoon when everybody would be back home from school and from, from work and she would pray to God and then her last prayer would be at night where just before we go to sleep, mom would pray. The focus of her prayers was really about my dad because my dad was a strong alcoholic and, and he was going through a lot of things and mentally and so I looked up to my dad, you know, I would be the kid that would run to the fridge for him and his buddies when they would drink and, and, and bring them bottles whenever they would finish and I will collect bottles and I will just sit there. I couldn't sleep at night because I, I could only sleep when my dad would come to bed. And so, and I looked up to him, right? And um, things were like, okay, until it was time for me to go to school. Because when I got to school, I started seeing how parents were with their children and parents were a lot more affectionate with their kids, you know, than I was with my own parents at home, especially my dad. And so I kind of like started thinking things like, boy, that's so weird, right? I'll turn up to like athletics, right? Uh, I'll be like as young as six, seven years old and I'll see these parents and they'll be looking at their kids and they'll be saying like, do your very best. And, uh, and whatever you come, we love you and proud of you. We love you, proud of you. I was like, that's so weird. That's so weird. But then I started seeing it often, like parents not holding back and talking about their feelings to their kids and kids sharing, you know, um, holidays with parents and conversations that they would have. And I started craving it. I was like, boy, I wish my dad would say that to me. And, and, and I started thinking to myself, like, maybe it's because I'm not doing well enough. Maybe it's because I'm, I'm, I'm not making him proud enough. So maybe it's not obvious. And, and so I just spent, like, most of my younger years just trying to please my dad. But the thing was, my dad would never talk to me. He would only talk to me when I messed up. Only talk to me when I messed up. I knew I did something right that day if dad didn't have a single thing to say to me. And so I realized, you know, my mom was like praying for my dad day and night, praying for my dad day and night. And um, the thing was, both my parents had a way of dealing with us when it came to discipline, right? When my mom would discipline us, if we played up in public, mom would deal with us in public. And we're like, okay, all right. But my dad, my dad, the way he would deal with us if we played up in public, my dad would just give us that look like, your whole day was ruined, <laughs> right? You just wish you had, you wish it was like your mom's methodology of just dealing with you right then and then, it's over with. 
But my dad, he'd just give you that look and you knew what was waiting for you when you got home. And so me and my brother, we had this thing where when we knew we were in trouble, we'd go, we'd go up to our cousins and we're like, hey man, do you want to come over to my house, please? <laughs> and, and, and they'll be like, no. And, and if they say no, we'll be like, can I come to your house then, please? Anything to just try and escape the beating you knew was waiting for you. And if that didn't work, my brother and I would try to get home as quickly as possible so that we can walk into our room, go straight into the closet, grab all the clothes you own and put them all on. So when dad turns up in the living room with his belt and he starts to call your name, you come out looking like a snowman. Anything to try and escape, you know, a beating. And so... This is one time that I remember clearly, and this was kind of like the beginning of the end for me. I went to high school, and the high school that I went to, either you made it on the field of rugby, or you were just on the streets, connecting with the wrong group. And for me, I connected with the wrong group, right? And so I was just, we had this saying amongst ourselves, which was, one in, all in. And so... If you were to ask anybody in my high school just like what Rome was known for, they'll tell you he was known for always picking up rubbish during, um, you know, you'd say trash here, right? And so like he'd be, he'd have, a, he'd have a trash bin and he would like pick up rubbish every interval and lunchtime because he was always in trouble. I was always in trouble in school. And so here's the thing. This one day I was standing outside waiting with this bucket for my name to get signed off so I can get to class. And I hear inside the office, this ruckus was taking place. And I thought, man, boy, I started regretting this day for a long time. I should have just stayed standing outside and just, just mind my own business. What I did was I ended up walking towards the door and I like popped my head in. As soon as I popped my head in, I see my boys having this all in brawl with teachers and prefects. And so I didn't, I didn't just watch. I just jumped in and all of a sudden, we're, I'm, I'm involved in this brawl with these boys and um, teachers. And I end up like with my mates taking off from school. We're running across the field trying to get to a bus stop because we're trying to get out of there as quickly as possible because we knew they're calling the cops. And as we're running, I was like, my boys are excited, right? They were excited because they were like, did you see who I got? Did you see who I laid out? And they were talking about the fight. To me... I was just panicking because I was thinking to myself, what on earth am I going to tell my parents? We get to the bus stop. We jumped onto the bus. Again, they're talking amongst themselves. And I'm just sitting there looking at them like, man, we're all dead. Like, seriously, we're like, like oh my goodness, what are we going to do? We're, they're not going to let us back into school. I was 15 years old. Bus stops in this city called Henderson, West Auckland. I jumped out. And I was trying to process my thinking, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to explain this? And I look over and I see this tall building across the road from where the bus stop was. And when I crossed over there to talk to some people who were outside there, they told me that they were part of this course called Trisha's Academy. And it's a free course provided by the government. And you can either study for six months, nine months, or you could do three years, depending on what you want to study. And it's government funded. And I, and I thought to myself, like, as soon as I heard free, you know, I was like, boom, I've got an idea. I run upstairs and I started asking information about, you know, the courses that they had. And they gave me these 
pamphlets and I took the pamphlets and I put them in my back pocket. And it was like I had just cooked up the best lie that's going to enable me to escape the beating idea that was waiting for me. I ran downstairs, said goodbye to my friends, got to the bus stop, jumped on that bus, and I was on my way home. And I was just trying to muster up the courage, like, man, you gotta, you, you, you gotta do this well, you gotta, you gotta play this well. And so when I'm walking towards my house, I could smell the food, because mom, she would always cook, would never go out, would never be in restaurants. Like my first taste of McDonald's was when I left home. And so what was worse about that was like, you'd see these ads, right? And, and they'll have the, like, these Pizza Hut ads when they'll cut the pizza and they pull that piece and that cheese starts to ooze and you look at the screen and you're like, ah. <laughs> Never had a chance to sit in the restaurant and have a Pizza Hut because mom and dad were always like saving money. Mom was always like, no, you're going to have home cooked meals. And so I get home, I walk up the stairs, knock on the door, and mom opens the door and she's surprised to see me because school's not over. And she's looking at me, she goes, what are you doing home early? And I pulled out the pamphlets. Now, here's the thing. Mom can't speak English. She cannot even read. She doesn't understand English. And so I pull out these pamphlets, and I hand them over to mom, and I say to mom, Mom, I just got a scholarship to go to Auckland University. Mom grabs the pamphlets. She's looking at them. She stares at me, and she says, Oh, my goodness, you got to tell your father when he gets home. Like, this, we, we're going to celebrate this. And so for me, I was like, okay, one hurdle. i got one more to go. And so I'm waiting for my dad, and my dad gets home, and mom tells me to tell dad the news. And when I stand up to tell my dad, I'm like looking at him. My heart's like beating in my chest. And I looked at my dad, and I said, I, I got a scholarship to go to university. And dad looks at me, grabs the pamphlets, starts scanning the pamphlets as if he can read. And he looks at me, and he says, okay. That's the best reaction you'll ever get from my dad. Okay, good. So here's what my mom does, right? She gets on the phone. She's calling up all my family. Because that's what it's like in the Islander community. When one makes it, everyone makes it. And so everyone in the family are like coming over to celebrate this that same evening. And as my siblings are on the table and we're sitting there and I'm like, yeah, getting excited. And I'm thinking, boy, I better pass this course. I'm sitting on the table, and then red and blue lights are flashing outside our window. Knock at the door, and it's the police officers, and they had a warrant for my arrest. And I could, I could see my aunties, I could see my, my, my uncles, and, and I couldn't bear to look at my mom, because when I looked at my mom, she just had this look on her face, and that look was like she was like embarrassed, she was like broken, she was like, she was like, just like looking at me and it, it will take years for me to like eliminate that image from my head. But so I didn't look at my mom, but I looked at my dad. And as soon as I looked at my dad, he just gave me that look like you're dead. And so I got up, looked at the police officers and I was like, yep, take me to jail. I'm out of here. And so they put me at the back of this paddy wagon, take me down to the police station and take my photo and my prints and, and, uh, all the boys that were involved in that fight were all locked up that night. And so I walk in there. All of these guys were in there saying, like, man, please don't let me go to jail. Please don't let me go to jail. 
I was the only one that walked up in there saying, please take me to jail. And don't let me go home. Because I knew what was waiting for me if I went home. Needless to say, we spent a night in, behind bars. And the following day, we were in court and, um, for this assault charge. And they released us with bail conditions. And I looked at my dad as he was like saying to me, head towards the car. I was like, Lord, rescue me or somebody. We get home and I can't even, I can't even describe for you up here like what took place that day. But everybody in the neighborhood knew. And like my mom, she would never intervene whenever I was getting disciplined by my dad. But this night, she, she says she needed to intervene because she felt like my dad just lost it that day. And for me, I remember just getting up, seeing that gap between my mom and my dad in the door. My mom's trying to stop my dad. And I see them both. Um, I took that opportunity and took that gap and I ran. And I was out of there. And I remember saying to myself as I took off, I said to myself, I am never coming back home again. I'm done. I'm 15 years old. Down the street from me is this alleyway where all the thugs in my neighborhood would hang out in that alleyway, you know, turn up there. And I was just like desperate to find somebody who had a cigarette so I could just smoke and just chill. And while I was down there trying to think of like ways I could pay my dad back, right? I wanted my dad to, I, want, I wanted my dad to feel the pain for what he, I, I felt like he was to blame for everything. And I was thinking to myself, cause like my t-shirt was ripped. I was covered in blood. And I was like, how am I going to get my dad to pay for this? And then I entertained the idea of taking my own life. I said, man, if I take my own life, he's going to regret what he did. And then when I thought about it, I said, I actually want to be around to see him regret it. And so I thought, that's a bad idea. Let me, let me think of something else. While I was there, two of my boys turn up and they said, hey, man, your, your uncle's looking for you. He says to come over and chill at his place. My uncle, he was like one of New Zealand's notorious bikey gang presidents. And he, he, he calls me up and he says to come over. He tells the boys to come, come look for me and come stay at his house so he can talk to me. I turned up to his house and we sat down, we talked. And he tried to talk to me in a way that would tell me that this is my norm, go home. Just suck it up, go home. As he was talking to me, I was like, no, I, I don't want to go home. I'm done. And so he said, all right, I'll give you like a couple of days and then I expect you to go back home. Within those two days, I began looking for work because I didn't want to go home. I, tried, I wanted to like stay on my own two feet, take care of myself. It was so hard for me to try and get work because every time I talked about school, they would contact school and find out I was kicked out. And so I was trying to figure out what I could do. And two days ended up being two weeks with my uncle. And within those two weeks, I started seeing things happening at my uncle's place and guys that were hanging out there, pulling out rolls of money and stuff. And I was like, boy, I wonder what they do. And so as I was talking to one of those guys, he says to me, what are you doing tomorrow night? I said, nothing. He says, come for a ride. I went for a ride with him, drops me back off home, pulls out his fat roll of money, says, yeah, this is, this is yours. And I said to him, boy, next time you need me to come for a ride, I will ride with you any day of the week. Anyways, my uncle finds out and he said to me, hey, don't get caught up with this. I'm telling you right now, either go back home 
get into another school or go and find yourself work. Do not get caught up with this. But I felt like I had just found me something that I could do. And I said to myself, I don't care how many of these guys were at my uncle's place. I believed I was going to be better than them at doing this job. And I said, I'll do better. I'll be the best gang member in, 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 in my uncle's crew. I, I told him, and I, and I said, we'll be the best in the, in the city. We'll be the best in the country. My mind was in a whole different place at that point. And my uncle, as hard as he tried to get me to stay away from it, he started hearing story after story after story. He sat me down. I'm like 17, 18 now. And he said to me, listen, you want to do this? Let's do it right. And he put me through this whole prospecting situation where I was like connected to one of the guys where later on I would get patched up with this gang. And he told me they're going to teach you all the rules of the game. I said, okay. During that whole time, as soon as like I was patched up, I felt like I had just discovered my life purpose. I never saw life outside of this crew and I never saw myself outside of this life. I felt like I was in the community that loved me, that accepted me. They were like me, they had similar stories to me. And we kind of turned that victim mentality that we had talking about the brokenness of growing up and we we try to turn that whole thing around, change that narrative and take it out on the world. Anyways, there's this bar in Ponsonby Road. Those of you who are familiar with Auckland, there's this bar in Ponsonby Road where the boys would meet. Across the road from that bar was this cafeteria. And I remember one morning, early hours of the morning, where we were meeting at that bar, I decided to go to the cafeteria because, I, man, I just wanted me some coffee. So I told the guys, boy, this morning I'm just going to go grab me some coffee. Do you guys want anything? They said, no, we're good. And so they met there. I went across the road to that cafeteria, that cafeteria to get me a coffee, and I spotted this chick, this girl behind the bar, and I said to myself, boy, I want her number. And I was trying to work up the courage to get her number, and so instead of getting a coffee, I decided to get a meal, and I was going to sit there and eat. And so I did, sat there, ate, trying to work up the courage. The day finished, and I never even said a word to her. So the following week, I said, right, I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to talk to her. But I never told any of the boys but boy, I just wanted to get her number. I went there for a whole month and never had the courage to talk to her. And then she starts talking to me. And when she starts talking to me, she, she says, you just moved in the area. I just, she just sees me for the first time. You know, she, she says, I've noticed you've been coming here now for about a month. And I said, dude, she noticed me. <laughs> and, I, and, as we, and as we were talking, she starts telling me that she's a university student from Auckland, like a real Auckland university student. And she's here like paying her fees, part-time work. And she starts telling me about her life. And I was consumed by her story, her life, her family. I went from wanting to become her boyfriend to wanting to become a family member. She started talking to me about her problems and some of the issues that were going on in their family. I was like, dude, that's not issues. I was like, man, like, man, that's, and then she says, I'm not talking to my sister at the moment because we went through this issue. When she tells me about what she's going through with her sister, I'm like, boy, I wish I had issues like that. I wish I had problems like that. But she became for me somebody that I would go to and I would talk to her about anything and everything and she would hear me out. 
And then she would talk to me because there were people in the neighborhood that knew me and they would only tell me things I want to hear. She would tell me things I need to hear. You ever have people like that in your life? Those people are annoying people. But she would tell me things, right? But I would try and hide from her things that I was doing in my life because I didn't want, to, I didn't want her to leave me. We got together. We started dating. And I hid my relationship with her from some of the guys that I knew because I didn't want her to get caught up with that. So I was living like two lives. Five years later, she says to me, hey, I got this situation and I really need to talk to you about it after work. Can you meet up with me? I said, sure. When I met up with her after work, she tells me, hey, um, I went and got me a test. It came up positive. And I remember looking at her and I said, okay, what's the big deal? She goes, what do you mean, what's the big deal? And I said, we'll get rid of it. She said to me, really? And I said, like, I'm not in a place right now to be a father. And the way that I said it to her, I said it in a way that you're not going to change my mind. I had a bad experience with my dad. And right now, where my life is right now, I can't be a father right now. And she was like, all right, cool. She shut the conversation off, but she started talking to people. And then we met because I told her that we needed to go through with this abortion. And so she tells me, okay, they told us that we need to sign up to go through counseling in order for us to get that approved. And so we went through the whole counseling session and then put a date that we were going to have this abortion, which was like two and a half months after. And so when we, we turned up to Green Lane Hospital in Auckland, I was there early, 10 to 10, waiting for her to turn up at 10 o'clock. It hit 10 o'clock, she wasn't there. 10 past 10, she wasn't there. I waited until half past and then I went to a nearby payphone, picked it up and I left a message on her phone. It was a not so nice message. I said to her, you go through this pregnancy, you go through it alone. You're not gonna have anything to do with me. So I hang up the phone, that was it. It'll take another six, seven months later. And we're watching the game, me and my boys were watching a game and it's the equivalent of the Super Bowl here. Back home, as we're watching that finals, the grand finals for NRL, I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know, watching the game with the boys. My phone starts to ring. As soon as the phone rings, I pick it up. The person on the phone says, Rome, just so you know, you had a son tonight. I put the phone down and I try to like let that thing just pass over me so I could just get back into watching the game. But boy, the thought that I was a father, the thought that I had a son started to like create curiosity within me. At the end of the game, I told the boys, listen, I'm going to go over to Waitakere Hospital and I'm just going to walk in there. I, I, got, I, I got a few things I got to sort out. They said, okay, let's go. All of us will go. Five of us in this car, we drive out to Waitakere Hospital. And here's the thing, right? When we turned up, it was late. No one was able to visit unless, of course, you were the father. And I turned up and I told the boys, 
listen, this is going to be real quick. It's going to be in and out. The boys are like, sweet, all good, in and out. Jumped out of the car, walked inside. I was not prepared for what was going to take place in that room. Like I walked in that room, not caring about my life, ready to give my life to what I thought was the perfect cause. And when I walked into that hospital, went into that room, and I saw my son for the first time, and I remember him laying there. My, like his mother was asleep, but he was laying there with his fingers. I could remember his fingers clearly. This baby was like looking at his fingers like this. And I stood there looking over, making sure that all his fingers were there. I'm kidding. I stood there looking at him and I, and I said, man, that's me. Like that's my flesh and blood. That's me all over again. And as I was like looking at him, he like looks over to me and like eyes are trying to open. And before, you knew, before I knew it, I heard like he's not going to bite you. His mother turns around and says, pick him up. So I picked him up, put him up against my neck. I could feel his warm skin against mine, feel his little heartbeat. I looked at him, and what was supposed to be an in-and-out moment ended up being a three-and-a-half-hour moment. We started talking again. I was looking at him. We are coming up with a name for him. I was so excited about life, I remember telling her, listen, whatever you do, don't get him anything. I want to be the first one to get his first formula, get his first, you know, um, nappies, his, uh, what you would say, diapers. Or I'll be, I want to be the first one to get his first, you know, um, clothes. And I was just so excited about being a father. She was like surprised. So I like walked out of that hospital that night. I was like, yes, I got a son. I have a son. And I was like, boy, I want to see him again tomorrow. And I thought to myself, if I want to see my son tomorrow, I got to survive tonight. That means things have got to change for me. But these things were happening in my head, right? As I was walking towards the car, four of my boys are still waiting for me. There are no more cars out there. They're the only ones that's been sitting there all night with all this smoke butts outside the window. I walked towards the car, opened it up, and my boy goes, in and out. I jumped in and I wanted to tell them about like, my feelings as a father, but I knew none of them would know what I'm talking about. And as they reversed the car, got out of Waitakere Hospital, we were on Universal Drive, and they went to speed down Universal Drive. And just when they went to do a burnout in speed, I said, oi! Looked at the driver. I said, this street right here is 60. <laughs> my boy pulls back. And he looks at me and goes, okay. And I said, you go 50. <laughs> and he slows right down. He doesn't know what happened. And he slows right down and he looked at me and he goes, dude, I'll go 45. <laughs> so he slows the car right down. There's this awkwardness in the car. But for me, I was like, I said under my breath, you could have hit somebody, somebody's son, somebody's father. You could kill us, and I'm somebody's father right now. And so I was so conscious now about my life, 
I was more careful with my decisions. But things began to change in me because love does that. Love has a way of changing things. It's to the point where we're at the supermarket and my boys were there. And, and this man and his four daughters, they, were, they, they walked down the aisle where we were. And our, our language, the way we, we would talk, is a cuss word every second word. Was a cuss word. And so they're just talking their normal ways. And this man and his four daughters walked down this aisle. And I turned around to my boys and I said, Oi, watch your mouth. Guy's like, what on earth is happening to this guy? I was like, bro, there's a, there's a man here with his daughters, man. She's so respect, man. They realized change was starting to happen already for me. And for me, my son was everything. I would like turn up to his house, pick him up when he couldn't sleep at night. I would celebrate his birthday, Christmas, anything just to get him a gift and see that doofus face that he pulls every time he opens his gift like and I look at my boys and I tell my boys like look at his face the boys have no idea what I'm feeling this one night cops bombarded the place that we were at they were just tearing things up and before you knew it I was like locked up and I was on the six o'clock news my son's mother watched that. And she started seeing everything unfold, an investigation that's been going on for quite some time. And she's watching this on the news. And she, she was like so spooked out that the person that was heavily involved with this drug operation is somebody that she's known for the, for the past seven years. And immediately her and her family pack her stuff, and she's gone. I'm going to court. I'm like, turn, they, they arrest me. I'm turning up to court every week, held in remand for like six weeks as this trial was going on. I kept my mouth shut, waiting for her to like visit me or something so that I could explain to her that my love for her and my son is real. She never turned up. I tell you, he does turn up. Just my mother. My mother would turn up, and she's like trying to convince me to tell the truth. She's trying to convince me. I'm looking at my mom, and I remember telling my mom, Mom, you don't have a son anymore. You stop coming here. And no matter how many times I tell my mom to stop visiting, here's the thing with my mom. Ever since I was like as young as 12, I'll get in trouble with the law. I'll be in court. I'll go through Juvenile, I'll go through all these things. Mom would be the only one that would turn up for my dad. He would never be there. But my dad was just like, whenever we were disobedient, he was like disgusted at us. And so he never turned up to any of our court cases. And I mean, Al, as in me and my brother, because my brother would follow my footsteps. And my brother was exactly the same way as I was. And so here's the thing. Mom would turn up faithfully to our court cases. I get locked up after the six weeks, how to remind, and I hear the, those six weeks felt like six years for me, by the way. Because the only person I was thinking about was my son. But after the six weeks, and I hear the judge say two and a half years. I was like, what am I going to do now? 
What is my son going to do now? I was thinking all these things, and they take me, put me away two and a half years. And in my mind, I was thinking, all I have to do, behave myself, do the right thing, get out, try and make a change, and just be a father. This was my reasoning at the time. My brother follows my footsteps, does the same thing. He ends up in court for armed robbery with his friends. And mom's at his court case. But something happens. My dad, who's at home, both sons are no longer at home. He's like, those boys will never be allowed back in this house again. And I don't ever want to see those boys again. Dad's working. One day, when dad's on his way home from work, his car breaks down. And when his car breaks down, he had two items in the car. He had a beer crate and a 20 kg sack of potatoes. I don't know what that is in pounds, so you do the, you, you do the math. He could only take one of those items to the, to the nearest bus stop. And just so you know where my father's life was at the time, he left the 20 kg sack of potato, t- takes the beer crate, goes to the nearest bus stop in New Lynn, West Auckland, sits on that crate waiting for his bus so he can go home. Directly behind that bus stop is a building where an evangelist was running a Daniel Revelation seminar. It's a Polynesian, Samoan evangelistic series, so you know the singing is going to be loud. And not only is the singing going to be loud, you know the preaching is going to be loud. And so dad is sitting there and he hears the singing and he's like, boy, I just can't wait for this bus to get here. The bus wasn't going to turn up to another 20 minutes. Dad is sitting there listening to the music and he's probably like cringing. The preacher gets up to preach and he starts preaching and dad's sitting there listening to the sermon. After 20 minutes, bus turns up. Everybody jumps on the bus except my dad. Bus goes. Dad sits there for another 20 minutes for the next bus to come. He lets that bus go. He's like listening to the words of the sermon. At the end, he finally jumps on this bus, goes home, tells my mom, like, uh, like my mom was like asking like what happened. He tells my mom what happened with the car, puts the beers in the fridge. And my mom remembers this. It's the first night he doesn't open up a bottle to drink. He goes straight to sleep. Puts the bottles in the fridge and he goes straight to sleep. And when he's asleep, wakes up the following day, goes to work. His boss says, I heard your car broke down. I can drop you off home at the end of work. Dad says, it's all good. I'll catch the bus. He's back at the same bus stop. He finds out because he hears it's an evangelistic series that's going to go on for three weeks. Dad goes to that bus stop every day of that week. It was going on for like five days a week. And dad turned up every week to listen outside of that bus stop that on the last day, the preacher makes an appeal. And dad walks from this bus stop into that building and 
finds his way into where people were gathering, and he walks all the way up, sees the preacher for the first time, and he responds to the appeal. When he responded to the appeal and he, and he decided that he was going to get baptized, he gets dropped off home by this elder. And when he gets dropped off home, it's a funny thing. My mom, after three weeks, she's like getting very suspicious about where he's at. She's like, he's cheating. Dad turns up in the house, walks into the house. Mom's looking at him, trying to talk to him. He tells the story, goes to the fridge, takes out the beers that he put in there three weeks ago, opens it up, and pulls it down the sink. Mom's looking at him, and she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm getting rid of these. Are you going to stand there? You're going to give me a hand. She goes to the fridge, and she pulls them out, and both of them are having this moment where they're pouring alcohol down the, the drain. And dad looks at my mom and says to my mom, I love you. I'm going to get my boys back. That same week was my brother's court case. And my brother, when he tells the story, he says, boy, when mom walked in, I was surprised because mom walks in and then dad walks in and, and, and like, Church members were walking. In our court cases, right, you got like gang members on one side. And my mom says, my brother says, dude, man, you had like gang members on one side and you had like church members on the other and like the church members outnumbered them. My brother's like, dude, man, I saw dad. The look on his face, man, you should have seen it. My dad, my brother's telling me the story. During that court case, my brother was the last one. My dad stands up and interrupts the court case. I mean, he could have got told to sit down and to leave, but the magistrate doesn't stop my dad. My dad stands up and he says this in Psalm 1. I'm going to say it in English. He stands up and he says to the magistrate, my son's failure is not his alone. I'm not asking you to give this boy a second chance. I'm asking you to give a father a second chance. The magistrate, she takes a glass of my brother, says, man, it was like crazy. She says, I can't make a decision right now, but we're going to come back next week. My brother gets taken back into that cell, and my mother yells out to my brother and says, son, pray at 10 o'clock in the morning and pray at 10 o'clock at night, knowing that your father and the church is praying for you 10 o'clock in the morning and 10 o'clock at night. My brother's like, okay. Boy, I wish I was a fly on the wall to watch my brother pray that prayer. But he prayed every day of that week. And when he comes back out, the judge releases him. Had to do certain amount of hours of community work. But he said this prayer, God, if you're really there and you help me out of this, I will come seeking after you. My brother packs up, leaves New Zealand. Soon as he's done with everything, off to Australia. Soon as I get out of prison, I'm like, the first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to find my son. And for me, I was just like, I'm done with everything else. I'm going to avoid going back to that life and just try and be the best dad I can be. And I remember when I got out, um, 
The boys are trying to celebrate with me. Everybody was trying to celebrate because I was out now. They're like, yes, and celebrate. Man, we got this plan. We're going to take over. We're going to do all these things. As they were talking, I was sitting there. I had zero interest. Just wanted to know where my son was. That night, I sneak away, jumped in the car about 3 o'clock in the morning, drove to that place, and I had my speech ready to say to my son and his mother I was going to apologize for everything. And as I walk up the driveway, knock on that door at 3 o'clock in the morning, this lady comes to the door, and she was so mad. She says, no one by that name lives in this house. So I started calling up her friends and her family members, and none of them would tell me where she was. I got like depressed and I tried to get back to doing what I was doing with the boys, but my mind was no longer the same. My uncle calls me up one day and he tells me to sit down with him so he can talk with me. When I sat down with him and started talking to him, I was explaining to him all these things. He said to me, the guys in prison were saying that you were acting weird. The guys out here are saying that you're not the same. And when I told him about my love for my son, and I didn't care what the consequences was anymore. I just wanted to be real with where my heart was. And he told me that night, get out of my house. Told me all the things he wanted back at my house, back at his house. He says, I want all this back at my house, and I don't ever want to see your face again. That's the nice version I'm giving you. That night, I knew he was cutting me loose. Walked out of the house. Straight back to the pad where all the boys were, gathered all the stuff that he wanted, brought it back early hours that morning, called up my mom to try and find out where my brother was because I needed somewhere I could just go and just talk to somebody. My mother says, your brother's no longer here. I say, where is he? She says, he's in Australia. This is his number. Call him. So I called my brother. My brother says, okay, what are you planning on doing? I said, I'm planning on coming to you. Will they even let you in the country? I said, boy, I need to get out. And so he gives me his address, tells me, okay, I'm in Kurumbong, Freeman's Drive. Kurun what? He says, Kurumbong, you're a big boy. You'll find it. Wrote it down, put it in my back pocket, planned everything, got me a ticket, getting ready to fly to Australia. I wanted to leave everything behind me in New Zealand and go to Australia, start a new life. I get to the plane, I, I, I get to the airport, and I'm like thinking, please have my ticket there, please have my ticket there. I was like, like sweating like a drug dealer, like please have my ticket. They had my ticket. Then I get to where my gate was. I'm like, please call my, please open up now quickly. I just want to get on that plane. I was envisioning somebody just stepping in and saying, Rome, off. And so I just wanted to get out. As soon as the gate opened, I jumped on that plane, put my belt on, put my, the only thing I had was a backpack. That's all I was taking with me. And all I was thinking was like, hurry up and fly. Hurry up and just take off. Soon as that plane took off and I saw that last piece of Aotearoa, that last piece of New Zealand leaving my window, I saluted New Zealand and said, I'm never coming back. Plane lands in Sydney and I get arrested there. They're like going to send me back. And I remember sitting in that room thinking to myself, like, hurry up and just send me back. The audacity to think that I could just escape, that I could just go. No, there's no running away from your life. That's who you are. You're going back to that. And so I was content with it. While I was being questioned, I was sitting there. All I was thinking was just hurry up and send me home. 
And as I sat there waiting, after hours and hours, they contacted New Zealand. They were talking. The guy grabs my backpack and hands it back to me. My, my passport says, you're done. You can go. The moment he said that, I didn't even ask him what happened. I just grabbed my bag and the passport. And I was, yep, later. I walked out of there, jumped on a train, got off at the first one. Went to a booth and asked them, how do I get to this address? And they told me it's going to take you like three hours to get there. As soon as I get to my brother's place, the house is in front of me, early hours of the morning. And I remember looking at that house and I said to myself, like, boy, after all of that, this better be his house. Walk towards the house and I open it up. And there's this lady standing there with two kids. And she's looking at me as if she already knows me. And she's like... I'm like hugging her. I turn around, I see my brother behind him, behind her, and I was thinking to myself, like, hey, my brother's married, kids. I'm hugging her and I'm looking at him, and he's like, they let you in the country. And I looked at him and I said, they let you in the country. <laughs> Me and my brother, we connected. And every night I was drinking myself to sleep because I couldn't go to sleep. My brother said, man, that thing's gonna kill you, man. Get work. And just get busy, stay busy, that'll help you with your thinking. So I did, I got busy, got three work, uh, three jobs. I was working three jobs, scaffolding, security work, washing dishes at a, at a restaurant. Sometimes I'll sleep in the car. I didn't care about myself anymore because I was just trying to get through every day mentally. And after working there for so long, my brother, um, you know, in, in Australia, my brother tells me, hey, I'm at Avondale, college right now. Like I'm studying at the moment. I've got to go there, check my emails. Now you got to understand when I left New Zealand, like we only heard about what the internet was. So when my brother said he's got emails, he's got to check. I was like, Ooh, big guy. Okay, let's go then. Let's go check your emails. So he takes me to Avondale. It's my first time at Avondale. Takes me to the library. We sit down. He's looking through his emails. Next thing you know, he's on the social media website. And he's checking, you know, um, all his, you know, notifications. It wasn't Facebook. It was Bebo. And I don't know if you guys knew what Bebo was. It was like before Facebook. And I sat there and I was looking at all these people on that page. And I said to my brother, like, dude, how did you get a picture? How did you connect with? How did you know? And my brother goes, it's a social media website online, man. And I remember looking at him and I said, can I punch somebody's name in there? He says, yeah, go ahead. I sat down. Punched in my son's mother's name and voila, her page comes up with my son's photo as the profile pics. And I turned around, looked at my brother and I said, that's my son. My brother goes, dude, that's her page? I said, yeah. Dude, everything that you wanted to say to her in all these years, man, you can say it to her now. You can write it. And it may be a better idea, man, because you, you probably choke if you talked. So just write it to her. So I said, sweet. So I wrote to her. Man, I, I like wrote a lengthy message explaining to her everything. And I went to work the following day excited. I couldn't wait for her to reply. I was so confident in the letter that I wrote that she'd give me a response. Following day, I get back and my, bro my brother's like, you want to check it? Yeah, let's go check it. So I checked it. And as soon as we get to open up his messages, it just has at the bottom, there's no reply, but at the bottom it just says, seen. I was like, good enough for me. 
So I wrote again and wrote again and wrote again day after day, week after week, month after month. The whole of 2005, I'm like writing near the end of that year, getting into Christmas. I get this response and and the reply was so short. It's annoying after all that writing, right? It's like writing somebody a text and you take the time to write it all out and they reply with, okay. (laughs) It's worse now. It's like just K. (laughs) But she replies and it's so short. And what she says is she goes, she said to me like, you can come and see your son, but that's about it. Boy, I went home and I was telling my brother, hey man, I'm going back, I'm going back. He says, if you go back, you're not coming back here. Trust me, do not make that trip. And I looked at my brother and I said, I don't care what happens to me. I want to see my son again. My brother knew he couldn't stop me. So I'm on this plane, get to New Zealand at Christmas of 2005, going into 2006, New Year's. I will never forget that day when I get to the airport. I'm at the airport scanning the room looking for for her and looking for my son and emerging out of the crowd because people were going back home for Christmas and New Year's. Emerging out of the crowd was this boy, this little fro, and he starts running towards me. I recognize him, but the surprise is he recognizes me. And as he runs towards me, I pick up the boy and I'm holding him and I couldn't squeeze him into my heart enough. I scan the room and I see his mother and she's looking at me like, whatever. I walked up to her, hugged her. We spent that night just trying to make things right. I was just trying to explain everything to her. Long story short, I proposed to her. We get married in New Zealand. And I remember telling her that we need to go back to Australia because for me, this is not the place. We pack up to go back to, 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 to Australia. When we get back to Australia, here's the thing. Had our own place. Things were working out. Both of us were working. I get home one day from work and she says, hey, phone, it's for you. And I remember looking at her saying, hey, man, I'm really tired. I'm just going to get to sleep. Whoever it is, just take a message. She goes, no, you're going to want to take this. Grabbed the phone, looked at her, said hello, and it's my dad. I left home. I was 15. I'm 27 now. My dad's on the phone. And he's telling me he wants to come and visit. I'm on the phone looking at my wife. I wanted to give a big fat no. But as I was on the phone getting ready to say no, my wife was going, say yes, please. Just say yes. Say yes. My son was like, say please, dad, please. I'm looking at them going, man, there's history here. I couldn't explain it to her. I just said to my dad, All right, we'll pick you up. Get off the phone. We get ready that weekend to go pick up my dad. I wanted to explain it to her, but I didn't know how to explain it to her. And here's the thing, and I wanna wanna finish here. The whole time I was locked up in prison, the whole time I was away from my son, it it was my father that was raising my son. His mother would drop him off every week to my parents' house so that she could go to work. And none of them opened up and told me anything. And I didn't know that my, that, that my wife and my dad knew each other, that my 
that my wife and the family knew each other. And I remember just like going to the airport, waiting for my dad to walk through, and I was preparing them because they didn't tell me yet. And I was preparing my wife, hey, my dad's like this, my dad's like that, just be careful. My dad walks through the, the gate. I could have missed him. He just looks so different. Something about him that wasn't the same. You know, when, you know when Jesus walks into somebody's life, something changes, you can't put your finger on it. And my son, right, he's holding my hand. He just like pulls from my hand and runs from my dad. And I just looked at my son, I went, traitor? My son is in my dad's arms, walks over to my wife and he hugs her and he kisses her. Then he comes over to me, puts his hand out like this. And I remember just like walking away to the car. He's still standing there with his hand out. Told my wife, hey, don't get in the, don't let him sit at the front. He can sit at the back. So my wife sits at the front. He's at the back. We get home to my house and my brother's there with his wife. They sit up the table. Everybody's eating around this table. And I'm telling you, they're all like passing food around, smiling and laughing and talking about things. I'm sitting there looking at them going, what in the world is going on? I looked at my wife and I was like, you've got a lot of explaining to do. When everybody went to bed, my brother and his wife went home. I was sitting there with just my dad. And it was there that me and my dad made things right. I went to speak up. But my dad spoke first. And I said, you go first. And my dad started telling me all these things about his experience, his life experience, and his, how God transformed his life. And I started breaking down as my dad was talking to me. And then my dad like comes over to me, sits right next to me, looks at me, and he says to me, son, I love you and I'm proud of you. The moment he said those words, I like look at him and I had nothing else to say. I just broke. And we spent the next three months together doing father, son, and grandson things. My dad returns and he goes back home after three months. But he says these words before he leaves. He says to me, Rome, you see that boy that saved your life? I said, yes. He says, you owe it to him to save his. Break the cycle in the family. Raise a new generation of God-fearing children and don't you dare look back. The moment he said those words, for me, that changed everything. I began a journey from that day onwards in 2007 when both my wife and I were both baptized into the church. Three and a half years later, I get this phone call from my mom. She says, son, what are you doing with your life? She just heard from one of her relatives that I was running an evangelism crusade in Sydney and she didn't believe it was me. So I never told my mom that I was studying a degree at uni because the last time I told her that, I lied. So I just wanted to get that piece of paper and prove to my mother she didn't raise a fool. just six months of my degree left my mom finds out I'm doing this crusade and she rings me up she says I just asked you a question I say yeah what are you doing with your life I say mom I'm going into the ministry 
it's, this is my final year. She doesn't say a single word for the next minute. And then she says, thank you, Jesus. After 30 years of prayer, 30 years of prayer, I prayed for my husband, prayed for my, my daughter, prayed for my sons. There's power in prayer. And I want to leave you with this text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone, anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We serve a God that's all about reconnection. He is reconnecting sons and fathers. That's part of the prophecy of the coming one. He would reconnect fathers, sons, daughters, mothers, because there's coming a day when all family members standing on that sea of glass, and I can't wait for that day. And so the ministry that you and I are involved in is a ministry of reconciliation.
never stop working, never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I Tonight's the last night, and so I want to pray for three things here today. Three things. Here's the first one. If you're here today and you've never been baptized before, you've been asked, or maybe you've heard and it wasn't your time, it wasn't your moment, tonight could be your moment. In fact, tonight might be the night. And if tonight's the night and you want to be baptized, I invite you to come up to the front, if, you wanna, if you're here today, you've never been baptized before and you'd like to be baptized, I invite you to come up to the front as we, we would like to know who you are. As pastors, this is what this is all about. And so if there's anyone that's here that wants to be reconciled, or if there's anyone that's here that has never heard of Jesus and have just heard about Jesus, and would like to give their life to Jesus, that's the first call. The second one is if you're here today and you'd like to be reconciled to the Father or you just want to get to know Him better, you want prayer, I invite you to come as we pray together as well. So the first one, if you, need, if you want to be baptized, I invite you to come. Second one, if you need prayer, you just need prayer to get to know Jesus a little bit more. As pastors, we're here for you. We don't want that experience to just end here. And so I invite you to come up to the front as well if you would like prayer. The last one, if you're praying for somebody, or if there's somebody that's in your life that you're working with or ministering to, somebody that you want to be reconnected with, or if there's somebody in your community that you would like to be reconnected to the Father, it's a prayer of reconciliation. 
And if that's you, if you're praying for someone, I invite you to come up as well. So there's three prayers here. For those of you who want to be baptized, I invite you to come. Those who just want prayer, I invite you to come. And those who are praying for somebody else or ministering to somebody else, I invite you to come up as well. And if that's you, I invite you to come up and we'll pray together. In fact, I have people I'm, I'm praying for too. So if you're here today and you just want prayer, I invite you to come, we'll pray together. And also, if you're like wanting to be baptized, we want to know you. We want to connect with you after this and make sure that that happens. So before we finish camp meeting 2022, praise God, 2022. We want to finish things up with anybody that's here and just wants to be reconnected with God or just wants to pray for somebody that they're thinking about, I invite you to come. So with that, I invite everyone, if you could just bow your heads. Bow your heads. And it's still not too late for anybody as well that just wants to make known to us tonight that they would like to be baptized or they would like to have prayer. Or maybe that prayer is like, I want to get to know Jesus a little bit more and have Bible studies. As pastors, we're here. We want to give you Bible studies as well to get to know Jesus. And finally, if there's anyone that you are praying for, somebody that you want to reach out to or reconnect with, we invite you to come as well. Let's pray. Father, as we pause in your presence, we know, Lord, that we are unworthy to come before you, but we are grateful for what Jesus Christ has done. Lord, he gave his life for us and we can claim his righteousness. We can claim his life because he took ours to the cross, Lord. And so, Father, First and foremost, I pray that if there's anyone that is here today that wants to be baptized, I pray, Father, build a hedge of protection around them. I pray, Lord, that you can lead them, guide them, protect them. Pray as church members, as church leaders, that we surround them. Secondly, Father, I pray for those who just need prayer or maybe it's a Bible study to get to know you more. Father, tonight I pray that you can help us connect with them so that we can pray with them and lead them through your word, your word that testifies of your son. Lord, it's a truth that every single one of us needs to hear. And finally, Lord, some of us are not even standing here for ourselves. Father, some of us are standing here for a brother, a sister, an uncle or an auntie a work colleague, a friend. Father, I just pray that whoever they're praying for, you know who they are. I pray that first you give these people the power to be able to witness to them. Secondly, I pray, Father, that you can begin working in their hearts that they may receive your word and live. And I pray, Father, for your church to be a place where we can bring people that they can experience your love, that they can experience what it means to be in a Christian community. And I pray, Father, that you will continue to strengthen us as a church and prepare us for anything that may lay ahead. These last two years have been challenging, 
But Father, because of you, we are here in 2022 camp meeting. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Bless each and every one of us that's here today. Continue to speak to our hearts, Lord, and convict us with your word. All these things we pray in Jesus' most precious name. Let everyone say amen and amen. Praise God. God bless you all. Turn to the person next to you and just high-five that person.